Okay, y'all, turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 5. All right, there's a, there's a woman named Susan Everson, and she's of the Human Population Laboratory of the Public Health Institute, which needs to be shortened, doesn't it? They need a good acronym. I came up with an acronym for them called HUPOP, and I think I'm going to submit it to them. Uh, this is in Berkeley, California. She reported in her research in 1997 to the Journal of American Heart Association. She found that people who experienced high levels of despair had a 20% increase of atherosclerosis, which is a narrowing of the arteries. 20% more, 20% higher than uh, optimistic people or hopeful people. Uh, quote, this is the same magnitude of increased risk that one sees in comparing a pack-a-day smoker to a non-smoker. So in other words, one day of despair equals one pack of cigarettes. And now all of us are despairing of our despair, right? Good night. Um, but despair is a big deal. Kate Bowler, uh, she wrote a book just came out. She's a professor at Duke Divinity School. It's a fantastic book. Highly recommended. I forgot to bring it. I wanted to show you all what it looked like. Uh, she was raised in a Mennonite family and a Mennonite faith. She says where she grew up hearing that the most holy words outside of scripture were, I got it on sale. Um, <laughs> at age 25, she was traveling all over the country interviewing prosperity gospel celebrities. This became the foundation of her dissertation, which became the foundation of her doctorate. Um, she wrote the first history of the, of the movement, the prosperity gospel movement, from beginning to end. It is the authoritative work on it. She said she began her research with some presuppositions like these. Quote, I thought I was trying to understand how millions of North Americans had started asking God for more. How they seemed to want permission to experience the luxuries of life as a reward for good behavior. She said all that was true. She goes, I, I did discover that the prosperity gospel encourages people, especially its leaders, to buy private jets and multi-million dollar homes as evidence of God's favor. But she says she also discovered something she didn't expect. I found something else, she said. I found also, though, that there was a desire to escape. Believers, prosperity gospel followers, wanted an escape from poverty and failing and health and the feeling that their lives were leaky buckets. Some people wanted Bentleys, you bet, but more wanted relief from the wounds of their past and the pains of their present. People wanted salvation from bleak medical diagnoses. They wanted to see God rescue their broken teenagers or their misfiring marriages. They wanted talismans to ward off the things that go bump in the night. They wanted a modicum of power over the things that ripped their lives apart at the seams. It is an answer, prosperity gospel. It is an answer to the questions that take your life apart. Why do some people get healed and some people don't? Why do some people leap and land on their feet while others tumble all the way down? Why do some babies die in their cribs and some bitter souls live to see their great-grandchildren? The prosperity gospel looks at the world as it is and promises you a solution. It guarantees that faith will always make a way. She records that what she began to realize, and it haunts her to this day, is that she 
has her own prosperity gospel in her own life. And I guess her point is this. Every one of us are trying to make a way. Church growth expert Lyle Schaller says, if you want to grow your church, you must offer a note of hope. He writes, perhaps the most common characteristic of churches that are attracting increasing numbers of people today are not where the minister is on a theological spectrum or the denominational affiliation, but on what people hear and feel in the worship service. There is a note of hope. Is there? The one theme that is common to churches that are attracting more people is the theme of hope. The note of hope and optimism about the future is a powerful factor in determining the size of the crowd, end quote. Okay, so here's the point. Why is life so unbearable without hope? Uh, why are we all trying to make a way? Why must you have a note of hope or you won't make it? Why, Revelation 5 says, do we weep without hope? Please stand for the hearing of God's word. From the Revelation to John. Then I saw in the right hand of him who is seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? No, and no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of, of him who is seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen.
And the elders fell down and worshipped. This is the word of our Lord. Please be seated. So, Lord, the realities of this passage are breathtaking. Um, We ask that you would allow us to experience what John experienced. And you have it recorded here, so we would. And so, Holy Spirit, would you shine on the page and bring about the wonder and the reality of the glories of this passage. And we ask this in your name, amen. Okay, so why do we weep without hope? The answer is very shocking in this passage. The answer is because of a scroll. Hmm. Verse 1, Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals, a mysterious scroll, a secret scroll. What's in the scroll? And therefore, 50 million commentaries on that particular issue. What's in the scroll? Here's the answer. The hope of the world What's in the scroll is what spills out in the rest of Revelation. What's in the scroll is what rolls out into chapter 6 through 22 of Revelation. What's in the scroll is a comprehensive history of hope. Hope in the world. In fact, in Revelation 4 and Revelation 5 is the centerpiece of all of reality. Remember, you might begin how we began Revelation. We had Elisha's servant who was going out to do his business after a wonderful night's sleep, and he yawns and he stretches and he looks out, and there's a Syrian assassination squad, a whole army of them out there to get Elisha. And he freaks out and he goes running back in, and he's like, Elisha, chicken little, it's over. We're doomed. Is there a back door? I'll go first, right? No. He walks out. Elisha takes him out, and Elisha goes in front of the Syrian army. Is that reality? You bet it's reality. The hardness and harshness of life. And he says, oh, God, open his eyes. And heaven was seen. An army of angels surrounded the Syrian army. Now, don't miss this. Heaven wasn't out there, up there, somewhere in the beyond or down in the depths. Heaven was right there. He just didn't see it. In Revelation 4 and 5, the doorway to heaven opens and you get the hardness and harshness of life, the Syrian army, and a fuller picture of reality. And in that fuller picture of reality in chapter 4, you get a summary of the hope of the Old Testament. In chapter 5, you get a summary of the hope of the New Testament. Comprehensive history of hope is in the scroll, ready to spill out, and that's what the rest of the book of Revelation is. And, and the Lord wants us to say, listen, open your eyes. Open your eyes. His way of opening our eyes, just like the servant, is to give us these words, to give us the scroll. Now, those of you that are Revelation geeks, because I know you're out there, 
Some of them show up on Wednesday night. I love you guys. You're my A-team. You're thinking, but Jeff, not everything that comes out of that scroll is smiles and happy claps. In fact, there's some things that come out of that scroll. Look at chapter 6. I mean, you got the creepy horsemen. You got six of them. But we're waiting for the seventh. I guess he's going to show up somewhere in the rest of the book. But that's, that's not hope. That's hopeless. Here's a, this is important. I want you to notice that the writers, though, are not coming from the scroll. They're coming from the seals on the scroll. So what's in the scroll? The hope of the world. Your very hope is inside that scroll. Notice where the scroll is located. It's in the center of everything. So notice the scroll is where? It's on the throne, which is the centerpiece of all reality. And so that's where hope is. That's where courage is. Remember, oh, God opened his eyes. And what happened to Elisha's servant when he saw reality? He saw the throne. He saw the power of God at the center of everything. Oh, man, he was like, game on. He goes, give me the biggest one. Hope is in the center of the throne. Hope is at the core of the universe. Hope is at the right hand of the king himself who sits on the throne. And notice that he's sitting. He's not standing. A standing king is our hand-wringing king. A standing king is trying to marshal his counselors and his armies to figure out how they're going to defeat the enemy. A fighting here... Infantry over there, archers to the wall, a seated king, a seated king is a king that's in control. A king at peace, a king at rest, a king who's won, a king who's victorious, a king who's conquered, a king who's overcome, a king who is king. And so hope is at the center of the universe, on the throne, in the right hand, the scroll, in the right hand of a very calm king. Notice how old the scroll is. The original language tells you, I'm sorry, the English won't. Revelation scholar Grant Osborne notes that this was the most popular type of writing material for three millennia, from Egypt and 3000 BC to the Roman times. Do you realize <laughs> this means way, way, way before Moses? This material was being used. Greg Beale, in his landmark work on Revelation, says the scroll contains content that goes all the way back to Adam and Eve, all the way back to the beginning of all things. In other words, the hope of the world is in the scroll, and it's ancient. It's an ancient hope. It's not something new. In other words, Adam and Eve longed for it. Alexander the Great craved it. Sally and Sam today ache for it. Notice the writing on the scroll. Did you see that? It's written within and on the back. That's highly irregular. That did not happen in the ancient world. And the reason why is that the, the cover is what you held. So if you've got writing on the inside, writing on the outside, you're handling it. You're handling very precious material. Do you know how long it takes to write in those things. 
People do that for a full-time job. I cannot imagine. Those are the ones that get worse than carpal tunnel. Those are the ones that are cross-sided. Those are the ones that do that for their life. And some of you are still doing that kind of stuff. You're just doing it in front of a computer, right? I do too much of that stuff. But anyhow, on the back, it's highly irregular. Why? Because that you're held. The, the writing will disappear. The writing will be ruined. And so no one wrote that way. So you have a scribal break in procedure with this scroll. And you got to ask yourself, pay attention to the details he's saying. God is in the grammar. Why such a scribal error? And the reason is because what's contained in it is overflowing. It's spilling over. It's limitless. It can't be contained. It's extravagant. It's, it's extreme. The hope of the world is in the scroll and it's overflowing. Why do we weep without hope? Because of a scroll, because the scroll contains the hope of the world. The scroll contains a comprehensive history of hope. The scroll contains a hope that's ancient. The scroll contains a hope that's overflowing and surplus. The scroll contains hope's centrality to all of life. It's one of the ultimate, if not the ultimate, reality of life. And it's what the rest of the book of Revelation can't wait to spill over and show you. But there's also a second reason, and that's in verse 2 and 3. So let's look at it together. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice. This is wonderful. The word proclaim is actually preaching. So some scholars, most scholars say, here's what we got. We got a mighty angel who has a, a voice bigger than Spurgeon. And he's preaching. You know, Spurgeon preached to 25,000 people without a, a mic. You think I'm loud. Can you imagine? I wouldn't want to be on the front row. You'd want to be somewhere in the middle. But this mighty angel is going to preach so that every corner of creation, every piece of dirt, hears it. Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Do you see what an incredible sermon this is? This is phenomenal. It's a sermon of hope. The, the angel is coming and he's saying to all of the created order, to all the creatures and all their levels from heaven, on earth, under the earth, every beast, every ant. And he is saying, it's time to release the kraken. It's time to release hope. Let's unleash the hope. It's time. Hope's time. Has come. You know, I remember, do you remember the first time you ever hoped, like what your first memories were of hope, that you had a hope? Do you remember that? I do. I remember it clear as day. I remember my toys. I remember my army men. I remember my G.I. Joes. I remember, I remember electric football. And I remember the singular significance that would be stirred as I was the army man or the G.I. Joe or the, or the little piece going down the football field. I remember the longings and aches it generated. And I also remember as a little kid going to them with that longing and that ache and, and always being disappointed. Disappointed. 
they, they couldn't fully touch it. It gave me a longing for it. But they didn't meet it. I remember that as a kid. And I played hard. Well, you know, after my toys, I had also hopes. I had hopes. I remember my hope being in my parents. I remember my hope being in sports and winning and competition and beating people. Metaphorically speaking, Let's move on. I remember hope in friends, girlfriends. I remember hope in my first truck. I remember hope when I graduated, graduating from college, the hope there. I remember hope in going into campus ministry. Then I remember when I got married and my hope was in Nancy. And then we had kids and my hope in my kids and my hope in my home and my hope in being a, a good father and a good husband. And I remember my hope in being a, a good pastor and a good preacher and hope of being greatly used by God and hope of being loved by the whole world. C.S. Lewis in The Weight of Glory describes how books and music and art and literature and sunsets and cars and romance and friendships, he says how he writes in The Weight of Glory how they are thought to contain hope, but they do not. They are thought to contain hope, but they don't. Here's what he says. It, the hope was not in them. The hope only came through them, and it came in the form of longing. It came in the form of an ache. In other words, there is the hope and all these wonderful things that we hope in and enjoy are not the hope, but they give you and stir you and arouse you to the hope. But we mistake them for the hope. We long for a body that runs but never wearies, don't you? I know Rob Baker does. Just ask about our Tough Mudder event. We long for a love that lasts. We long for a singular significance that you actually matter and what you do is heroic and important and makes a difference. Does anyone not long for that? We long for friendship and community. You know what kind? That loves, that encourages, that honors, that gives. And here's what I long for. I long for a team of people that want to sweat and bleed for something bigger than themselves. Do you long for that? I long for a world, we long for a world that's whole, that heals, that blesses. In other words, when you engage this world, it flourishes. It's a world that challenges you, but a world that is subdued by you to flourish. We long for that. We all long for that. We long for hope. We long for the scroll. And so did John. Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? It's time to release the hope, the angel says, right? Verse 3, 
But no one in heaven and on earth and under the earth was able to open the scroll. No one. No one. No one. No one. No one. Devastating words. You know, we can do a lot of things. We can create the iPhone. We can create the Tesla. We can make a spaceship that can go to Mars now. We're going to do that probably. I wouldn't want to be the first one that does that. We can make cities and hospitals and universities. We can conceive and give birth to human beings. But no one can open the scroll. No one can attain the hope. No one. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll. The grammar makes it so clear. The grammar is saying this. John wept and wept and wept and wept. And so does our world. You can listen to the weeping in our music. You can read the weeping in our literature. You can see the weeping in our movies. We weep. Why do we weep without hope? Because no one can open the scroll. G.F. Watt has this famous painting. He painted this poor woman that's against the whole world. Uh, she has bandages around her eyes because she can't see. In her hand, she carries a harp, but when you look at the harp, all the strings are broken, representing, symbolizing all her shattered dreams, all the hardness and harshness of life, the desert that life is, the brutality and the abusiveness that life brings, the, the stuff that comes out and the stuff that comes at. It's all just brutal and hard and harsh. All her dreams crushed. But if you look closely, though, of all the broken strings, there's one unbroken string. And she plays it. And her life is filled with the music. And her night is filled with stars. There's only one unbroken string in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered. He can open the scroll. He can do it. 
The lion, this is unbelievable. The lion, the lion, the lion, the tribe of Judah. This goes all the way back to Judah. This goes all the way back to Jacob and the naming and blessing of his kids. We're at that moment he gets to Judah and Judah is blessed because there is gonna be a lion. A, a king of the jungle is gonna come from your line and he's gonna conquer the world. He's gonna overturn everything. He's gonna make everything sad, untrue. He's gonna heal the world. He's gonna conquer the world and he's gonna lead it to hope. But then that line gets devastated, the exile, right? Because Israel's taken away. First, the Assyrians taken away and they're just called the, last, the lost tribes. Then Judah gets taken away by the Babylonians and the line of David is gone. The line of the tribe of Judah is lost. It's a stump. It was cut down. It's dead. There's no life in it. But then there's a root that comes out of the dead stump. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. The lion has done what no one in heaven could do. The lion has won what no one on earth could win. The lion has conquered what no one under the earth could attain. The lion has prevailed. Weep no more. And then what happens next is impossible. And what I mean by that is this, is that literature fails, history fails, scholarship fails in this text, it's impossible for a preacher to preach. It's impossible for a commentary to get down what happens next. It's absolutely impossible because what happens next is not something natural. What happens next is not going to be found in the synapses firing in your brain or the lack thereof. It's not going to happen in your feelings. You're never going to feel the reality that's going to happen here. You could never come up with it comprehensively in your cognitive thinking. We can't find it in our art. We can't find it in our economics. We can't find it in our diplomacy. We can't find it in the world nations. We can't find it anywhere. It's not natural. It's not from this world. It's not the way we hope. It's not the way we live. It's not the way we trust. It's not the way we love. It's not the way we work. You know what the Bible calls it? The secret of the ages. The mystery of the eons. The deepest magic in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. New Testament scholar Eugene Boring writes about it. This is perhaps the most mind-wrenching rebirth of images in literature. The slot in the system reserved for the lion has been filled by the lamb of God. Metzger, another scholar, says, look, instead of a ferocious lion that hurts others, it's a sacrificial lion, lamb that takes into himself the hurts of others. Here's what's happening. This elder, John's weeping and weeping and weeping, and this elder, this elder preaches to him, a lion, tells him all about it. It's the lion of the tribe of Judah, John. It's the root of David, John. You know this lion. And John gets up, wipes his tears, follows the eyes of the lion, follows the eyes of the elder, expecting to see a lion, a victorious, triumphant king of the beasts, and sees a slaughtered lamb. 
What does a slaughtered lamb look like? Well, it looks like the kind of things we have stitches for. Probably not big enough, though. Probably staples. Um, uh, probably not staples could do this either. A slaughtered lamb's probably more gaping, more nasty, more violent, more gross. Hewn It's probably a good word. And what we find here is that the text literally says, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. It literally means I saw a slaughtered lamb. And so the trick is what's happening is here is he turns to see a throne, a king, a lion, and he finds the cross. The throne is the cross. The throne is the cross. The power is the cross. The conquer, the victory, the accomplishment, the achievement, what David demonstrated as this valiant, phenomenal warrior was always pointing to a cross. The most powerful reality in the universe, the cross. And the world changed there. You change there, I change there, your marriage changes there, families change there, neighborhoods change there, communities change there, churches change here because of this cross, the scroll is opened. Hope has come. Now the rest of the passage, the rest of Revelation 5 is music. It's a symphony. It's Six, it's nine through 14. It's the music of hope is playing. That one string is playing. It's filling all of creation. Wherever the music of hope goes, every creature falls on their face, not with terror, but with sheer, overwhelmed with joy. That the weight of joy, the solidness of hope is so real, it forces everyone down. They can't contain the joy that is spilled out of the scroll the hope that spilled out of the scroll. So we're told every creature from every level of heaven, earth, under the earth, everywhere the music goes, people are bowing, people are coming alive, people are, creatures are being themselves. Creation has awoken. It is now finally itself. But what's fascinating, notice though, it's not an, it's not an unbroken string that plays the music. It's a broken one. It's a slaughtered Savior. The implications of this are phenomenal. This means that we win by God losing. This means that we overcome by God being overcome. This means that we triumph by God being decimated. This means we conquer by God being conquered. The lion is a lamb, a slaughtered one. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and open the seals. Why? Why is he worthy? Don't miss what the text is saying. For you were slain. In other words, Jesus is worthy, is not worthy because he created us, which he did. And he's not worthy because he has perfect power. That's what the seven horns mean. Seven complete, comprehensive horns are strength. Horns are might. Horns are David on steroids beating Goliath. He has perfect power, and he's not worshipped, and he's not worthy because of that. 
He has seven eyes, which means he has perfect perception. He can see to the reality of everything, down to the roots of his existence. He has all knowledge and all wisdom, comprehensively, instantaneously, simultaneously every single time. He's not worthy because of that. And he's not worthy because he rose from the dead. He's worthy only because he was slaughtered. Jesus is our hope. Jesus is the stuff of the scroll. In him, sin and suffering lose. In him, you will one day have a body that runs and is never weary. I'll meet you on the first football field. In him, you will have a love and have a love that lasts and lasts and lasts and lasts. And in him, you will have loves that will learn to last. In him, you will have friendship and community that encourages, that learns to encourage, learns to love, learns to work together for a team, learns to sweat, learns to bleed for something bigger than themselves. In him, you have a world that will be whole. In him, one day we will have a world that when we touch it, it blooms. When we handle it, it flourishes. And it even pushes power and beauty and truth and glory into our life. Phenomenal stuff. I want you to look at verse 10. We're going to wrap this up. Look at verse 10. And you were made, and you made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they reign on the earth. Now, many ancient manuscripts, that word reign, many ancient manuscripts put it in present tense. Here it's in the future. Uh, so most scholars attribute the future to scribal error. They're just going along, and they mistakenly put in a future tense. I tend to agree with them. And if that's true, then what that means is we reign right now. And that sounds weird, doesn't it? Why? Well, because we don't run and not pant like a dog. Our bodies do break down. We break down. We sin. Our loves don't last. Communities split apart. Friendships break or just fail for apathy. We suffer. We break down. So how can you say we reign? This is how I think we reign. We reign by the way of the cross. We reign by the way of being a lamb, not a lion. And so not only is this completely unnatural and is the music of hope that makes us alive, but the reality is, is that we start conforming to that music and we start singing that song in our relationships and the way we live. And so we do things like this. We don't act like lions and control and dominate and bring in by sheer force and will and ability. We relate 
to people, we relate to the world by being a lamb. In other words, we bend to lift others up. We spend ourselves and exhaust ourselves and, and empty ourselves so we can fill others up. We suffer loss for others. We even take the hurts and the sins of others. Why? So the cycle of evil ends. In other words, the way of power, the way of triumph, the way of victory, the way of conquering is to sacrifice. It's crazy, isn't it? And you know why you can do that? You can fail because Jesus has given you all the winning you'll ever need. You can be ordinary and faithful and plug along because Jesus has given you all the singular significance you could ever need. You can love others when it hurts because he loves you with a love that lasts and is not fickle with age and time and season and hormones. Max Ocado has a friend named Joy. She teaches at a Sunday school class in an area where the family in those communities are absolutely shattered. There are no families. It's, it's, it's the Wild West. Kids are on their own from when they're really, really young. In her class is a timid nine-year-old girl named Barbara. Her, heart, her hard home life has left her fearful, anxious, and insecure. And so she never speaks. Never. Never speaks. When other children talk, she sits. When other children sing, she's silent. When other children giggle, her face is frozen in non-expression. Quote, always present, always listening, always speechless, end quote. That is, till the day Joy talked about hope, the hope of heaven. Barbara was fascinated. Barbara listened with a hunger and a longing that was screaming out of the core of her being. She would not take her eyes off the words Joy was saying. Barbara then raised her hand and said, Miss Joy, Joy was stunned. Yes, Barbara. Is heaven for girls like me? Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed a people for God. Is heaven for girls like me? Jesus says, it is now. <laughs> 